we should innovate a little bit here on our roll-ins. Well, clearly, I'm not an innovator. Just not at all. Uh, I hope that uh, the Nexus, you know, is a shining beacon of innovation in podcasts, but I'm not sure if that's happening yet. I don't think so. Oh, well. No, no, no. We, we, um, we, we draw our inspiration from everyone else and have no inspiration to give anyone else also. I'm not sure how this is going to fit as an intro, but whatever. That's how it works here. This is Control Structure, Episode 1, What's for Dinner, for November 22nd, 2012. It's bad, because Richard Stallman says it's bad, with guest Ryan Rampersad and host Andrew Bailey. Hi, Ryan. Hey, how's it going? Uh, it's going all right. So, how's how's uh, being uh, left without at the Nexus been? Oh man, it's it's been tough. I, um, you know, I I used to read tech news like every twenty seconds, and then I would immediately star it in feed reader, or I would save it to pocket, and then I'd have something to do. But now my time is just so open. I don't even know what to do with my life. Huh. Yeah. Well, I'm uh, hoping that you spend your free time wisely. I hope so, too. Um, so, as it turns out, uh, a lot of my listenership from the previous episode uh, uh, rather violently demanded that uh, they know who I am. So Violent, huh? Yes. So, with that in mind, I present to you the very first ever Control Structure Interview. As you may know by now, my name is Andrew Bailey. I have uh, heard of that. Yes. So, uh, well, why don't you ask your questions? Well, I do have a few questions for you. So, first thing I'm going to ask is not on the list that we've predetermined, but I, I do want to ask. First of all, how old are you again? I am 24. I just want to point out that you're the oldest one in the network. So, you might actually know what you're talking about. Yes. Um, and Theoretically. Yes, and I have also graduated from college. So you also might know what you're talking about with that too. Yes. Where did you um, Where did you go to college? I well, after a while, I eventually settled at uh, Newmont University, a rather very small school out in Salt Lake City, Utah. Mm. Uh, that I uh, threw hardly no uh, effort on my part. I got free tuition there. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So, my uh, student loans have been relatively light, thank That's goodness. Great. 
Yes, you know, I, definitely. I was sort of disappointed that that $100,000 bill wasn't going to be there when I graduated, but... Oh, how disappointing. You can't get everything in life, right? No. Oh, uh, well, so I have a question for you. So, obviously, you're doing computer science, or you did it, and now you're working as a programmer somewhere. Right. right? So, what got you started in computers and technology? Well, I think it was originally gaming, uh, like, especially back when I was, like, four or so. Uh, you know, my uncle, especially, was uh, into computers at the time, and... Uh, eventually figured out that computers were boxes that dispensed, uh, you know, fun and knowledge. So I wanted to learn more about them. And I'd say, like, the first sort of foray into programming was uh, HTML, which I sort of picked up when I was about 10. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's see, it was maybe around 2002 or so that uh, I was homeschooled at the time, and one of the, uh, you know, the parents in the organization decided to give uh, computer programming classes. Oh, that's which, cool. Which I, you know, said, hey, mom, I'd like to do this. And I guess that she agreed because, you know, just something to get me out of the house, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, that was uh, with Python. And I kind of liked that. And uh, just kind of, you know, uh, mushroom cloud from there. And so then fast forward 10 years, you're still using Python regularly? Uh, I wouldn't say regularly, just uh, here and there if I need to, you know, do something small or Mm -hmm. uh, update my uh, random sentence generator. Yes, definitely. So what was your first, uh, I don't know, either experience or big accomplishment in uh, programming? Uh, Especially looking back on it now... uh, figuring out how in the world 3D graphics and OpenGL works. Uh, I did a blog post about uh, WebGL not too long ago, uh, so I'm sort of getting back into 3D programming that way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, and that makes sense since you're, you, know, you were inspired by games to start learning about technology and computers, and one of your big accomplishments was, of course, looking into how those games work. Yes, yeah, definitely. You know, uh, I'm. I sort of went to visual because uh, you know, if you see something in front of your face change, you know, that's definitely a good feedback that you're doing something. Yeah, definitely. So, what kind of um, tools do you use now? Like over, over over your career and when you were in school, like how have they changed and what do you use now? Uh, well, currently, uh, at least professionally, anyway, it's a mix of Eclipse. And Tomcat and Oracle, ew. <laughs> um, but uh, in my spare time, I like to use NetBeans and Glassfish and Postgres. So now for, for some of our listeners who probably have literally no clue what any of those things are, might want to go through some of them. Okay, fair enough. So uh, I'm basically in the web programming area, and... Uh, Glassfish and Tomcat are sort of your web servers, Um, and some people might get confused. This is the actual server software and not the box that sits in the data center somewhere. Right. Um, So it's kind of like Apache, if they know what that is. Yeah. Usually, when you have a a website, you usually want to have a database with that. Mm -hmm. And uh, common databases are Oracle, MySQL, SQL Server, 
and uh, Postgres. And uh, the tool that uh, kind of helps me write the code is uh, an IDE, uh, which uh, is Eclipse and NetBeans. So how come you use two different IDEs? Uh, one personally and one professionally. I see. Uh, I like the NetBeans. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, uh, not too many companies use NetBeans. Uh, then again, I really haven't uh, tried to pry too hard on that. Right. So. What what makes you like NetBeans over Eclipse? Uh, well, I uh, program using Java, and uh, Eclipse and NetBeans are sort of the uh, leading IDEs uh, mm-hmm. for Java. And I like NetBeans so much better, uh, mostly because the code completion abilities, like where it goes and you know sort of you know figures out what you're going to do before you actually do it. Right. At least type it in. Mm-hmm. NetBeans is so much better at that, and it uh, also has uh, uh, built-in sort of. It's ideally used with Glassfish, so they work well together. Yeah, that's um, that's good. Yep. So, like, um, do you use uh, Windows and um, also like other Linux computers, or do you have what is your computer setup? Uh, well, I believe if you count them up, the number of Linux systems I support vastly outweighs the Windows ones. Uh, however, Windows tends to dominate my usage of computers by time. You know, I go to work and program on Windows. Mm-hmm. I come home and my desktop uses Windows and my server has a Linux on it. And I also have a virtual machine uh, with Linux in it that I actually use to program in. And then I move it over to my server, that's the physical boxed server, Mm -hmm. uh, to run my website. Oh, really? So you run it at home? Yes. Oh, that's great. Yes, and you can... So how do you do do that? Like, is it it fun to run at home, or is it obnoxious? Uh, After you figure it out, it's not too bad, and it mostly, you know, does its own thing uh, on its own. Mm Mm-hmm. So, you know, occasionally I'll go in there, you know, poke around, see if anyone's posted any comments, which sadly, usually no one does. I occasionally post, once or twice. Yes, and uh, Ian Buck, our good friend, uh, sometimes posts as well. Yes. And you can find that at theandrewbailey.com. Excellent. So, and uh, as far as your second question, uh, how how have my tools changed? So back in college... Uh, they mostly had, uh, uh, like two sides to the curriculum. Uh, one was Java and the other was .NET. Uh, oh, really? And C Sharp. So I, I have had exposure to the Microsoft stack, uh, SQL Server, uh, IIS, uh, Visual Studio. So compared to, so you use Java now and you use the Oracle stack, I guess. What right. do you think, what do you, what do you, what do you like about both of those? Or do you just despise the, the Microsoft stack? Uh, well, it was uh, sort of weird there because I graduated from college in 2009. And, you know, I, I looked around and saw that the economy was sort of going down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it had been down for quite a while. So, and I discovered that if you have a niche, like a certain small specialty that not many other people do mm-hmm. uh, that you know you'd be more likely to get a job and be paid well uh, better for it so I looked around and although Java was about half of the curriculum at my school uh, 
maybe 20% cheered for it. So mm. I sort of went the narrow road. You know, I haven't really checked up on uh, like .NET and C Sharp and like all of its new features since then. Mm-hmm. But like I really don't have much problem in using Java to accomplish what I want to do. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. So when I uh, I started using .NET as my first web language, uh, and Like, it was uh, great because, you know, you can do everything any web language can do. You can, like, read stuff from a database. You can display it in your web pages and stuff. But my biggest problem with .NET as a development system was you needed to have very specific hardware. You needed to have a Microsoft Windows something or other server, whether it's 2003 or some other number, 2008. And you also needed to have, like a huge initial knowledge before you could really start doing anything useful. Uh, the, the learning curve was very, very steep initially, whereas a PHP, a LAMP stack, I guess, uh, a LAMP stack, you just, like, you type in a few commands, it's like, oh, server. Yeah, um, that's pretty much the same uh, as my stack does, uh, at least with the Glassfish and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I believe that uh, you know the Microsoft stack is a little bit too tied in with the operating system itself. Yeah, definitely. Uh, like for me to be comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. And I've also used uh, several other tools professionally that I don't like, uh, like the IBM uh, Rational uh, Development Suite. It's not rational at all. The uh, source control system that they use that you know keeps track of all the code. That is uh, rather heavyweight, mm-hmm. and you know, if say the Windows domain that everyone uses, if that changes, it'll break the IBM, you know, the uh, source control tool. That sounds pretty bad. I don't think that should ever happen. No, no, I don't think so. And it, and if it does happen, it should not happen anywhere close to like everyone. Yeah. Well, there's two things I noticed there. You're using IBM source control, which is just odd and yeah. unusual. And then two, it's somehow integrated with Windows. Yeah. yeah. Um, thank goodness that was like my first job out of college. I am okay. totally not there anymore. Oh, good. Because if you were touching that, you would be very sad very quickly. Yes. And yeah. it's sort of depressing that uh, like companies that use this stuff need to hire people specifically just to make it run right of course so that's not that doesn't exactly uh, inspire confidence in your software no unless that's what they're going for so and uh with that we conclude the first interview Mm -hmm. and now i suppose uh, we'll do the second control structure interview Ryan, how did you get started in computers and technology? Well, it's funny because what you said was gaming, and I, I kind of, I, I've looked back at my, my history of computing and stuff. And so when I was a, a kid, I, I don't know when we got our first computer here, but uh, you know, it was probably when Windows ninety five came out, and then it was really, you know, it, it really worked for me at least 
like at least uh, in either first grade or kindergarten. That that's like ninety eight, ninety nine. So that's probably the Windows ninety eight uh, operating system I was using at the time. And games on it actually drew me in quite interestingly. Um, I suppose that happens pretty much with everyone. I think so. Um, but the game I was playing, though, was probably kind of odd. Now, back then, I had no clue what it was called, because, as you probably can imagine, I really couldn't read <laughs> when I was, I don't know, six-ish. Um, and uh, the game I was playing, in retrospect, was uh, Con- uh, Conway's Game of Life, but to oh. me at the time, it was just a game where you have your mouse and... I don't know, maybe it was like a 200 by 200, like, you know, tiled window. Right. And you, you know, make a pattern with your mouse, and then with the right button, you can get, make another pattern in a different color, and then you hit the big play button on on top, and then things would happen. Now, I, I, and and of course, I didn't know what the rules were, but you, any six-year-old probably would see a pattern eventually repeating enough things. And I had a lot of fun. I spent hours with Conway's Game of Life. And I had no idea what it was called, and I had been looking for it for years, you know, as I grew older, but no longer had that Windows 98 computer. Um, yeah. And so, so have you I, tried to, uh, you know, go back and try to, you know, run it in a virtual machine or something? I, I, honestly, I don't even know where that program came from. My, my parents never, like, said, oh, we got this game for you or anything. It was just on that particular computer so i I, i've no idea where it came from at the time and i never found it since of course you can get conway sims just about anywhere these days yeah um but yeah that was that was an interesting way for me to start using computers um and then after that just like you uh in sixth grade i started learning html and css and javascript and at the same time i started learning photoshop because my dad got um photoshop elements and then in middle school in seventh grade, I um, sh- showed off, of course, as one might do in seventh grade right. at new school. And um, computer teacher there um, didn't want me to be bored, so he demanded that I teach him Flash. <laughs> nice. And so then I, yeah, so then I did that for a semester, and then for the rest of that sp- semester in spring, I started learning .NET. So that was my first web. Uh, stuff and I really enjoyed doing that um, and then from there I started learning PHP and more JavaScript and then in in eighth grade I, I went to the state science fair uh, with program with with a program or not a program but a project that was based on timing the speed at which loops could run in different languages uh, so I've, I've been doing that kind of stuff for a long time. Okay. And that, that project should not have gone to state in retrospect. <laughs> Just so you know, dear Minnesota State Science Fair Committee, make sure you're harder on your students next time. Because that was not a good project. It was so poorly written and so poorly planned, it was a joke. But because it had computers in it, of course, adults just found it fascinating that, you know, a, whatever 14-year-olds had any clue what a computer was. Well, that seems sort of weird because the general consensus is that kids know everything about computers and the adults are the dumb ones. I know, but you'd expect uh, a computer science committee, and not a computer science, but, you know, uh, whatever committee that the state science fair is run by, you'd expect them to at least have some knowledge or something. Oh. Um, Anyways, uh, what, uh, was that your first gigantic accomplishment? 
Um, no, I, I, I don't know. I, I think it's hard to say what my first gigantic one was. Um, yeah, I, mean, I, I had a little trouble with that one too. Yeah, I mean, that's why I made you do it. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, um, thanks. Yes, definitely gigantic. Um, you know, I guess that is an accomplishment, but I think my preferred. I, I don't. I, I don't know. I don't think it's gigantic, but it's just the one I remember most vividly. Was the first time I, I had um, an HTML page work and look the way I wanted it to. You know, it was it was a picture of me, and it was my name, big and then centered, and it's like, oh wow, look at that, a website. And of course, it was just on my local computer, but I thought it was right. cool. Right. Yeah. Uh, was that back in the nineties? No, no, that was back in, um, let's see, when was sixth grade for me? 2003, 2004? Okay. Did it look like it was something out of the 90s? Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, the web didn't change from looking like the 90s until Gmail came out, which was 2005. I remember sitting in my school's computer lab like, I've got to sign up for Gmail right now. So, um, And what tools do you use right now, and how have they changed? Well, I can tell you how they've changed. I can give you the whole long chronological timeline but for time yes for time well so basically before this year i i was using uh, notepad plus plus to do all my website scripting stuff because okay. you know i i don't really need eclipse because i don't code in java when i was in high school i was in java classes so i used eclipse back then um and that was fine i, I don't i don't really like ides because they're slow to me, and uh, the code completion isn't really strictly necessary for what I do, since I'm usually writing the same API I'm using, so that's probably fine. Um, And then uh, you're also using a dynamic language? Right, so PHP really can't be used with code completion, because who knows what you're going to call when you say echo var. Who knows? Um, And how they've changed? Well, this year I started using Sublime Text, and... I think we're going to talk about it a little bit later, but Sublime Text is really quite um, a step up above Notepad++. But the best feature of it, of course, is that it's cross-platform. So I can use the same editor with the same settings on multiple computers with no problem. And, uh, well, I guess that concludes that. I I did ask you how old you were and when you graduated, I guess. Oh, how old are you and when did you graduate? I didn't graduate yet. I've got two more years-ish, I think, right? Yes. Uh, and I'm also 20. Okay, youngin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, let's talk about uh, our previous episode, uh, Control Structure Zero. Yes. Yes, as the proprietor of the Nexus, uh, you thought it went pretty well. Uh, it was great for our first episode. I, I don't know if you've ever heard um, at the Nexus's first episode, but yes, uh, I was definitely... And I believe the key words in that was first episode. Right. Uh, well, see, or, you know, or zeroth episode, as it may be. You like your zeroth episode? I will call it the first one because even though it's the zeroth index, it's the first one in the array of episodes. normal people would say it was the first. Yes, and I do it here to normalcy. Um, but yeah, I thought it was a great episode. Um, your your guest Ian Buck, uh, of course, as we all know, does a great job on Eight Bit, and he did a great job on your show, and uh, you did a great first show too. Awesome. So and. Uh... What did you think about your first show? Oh, I thought it was absolutely horrible. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I, I was actually quite amazed that I got 
uh, both me and my guest on the same audio track for the first time. I was honestly amazed that you did that too. Yes, and uh, you know we were sort of at the same you know sound volume all the way through. Mm-hmm. Uh, the content uh, it was all right. Uh, maybe a little short on the uh, episode length, but you know, length is not something you need to strive for. It just happens or it doesn't. It's fine. Yeah, I mean, you know, you sitting over at, you know, at the Nexus, you know, mm-hmm. you know, you were having, you know, hour, hour and a half episodes. Yeah. And then, you know, you know, me and Ian tended to, you know, fart out just a half hour. And, you know, 25 minutes of my hour and a half is literally Matt laughing into the mic. So. At a high volume. Yes. And, yeah. uh. At least you, know, you didn't have that. So I guess I put my, uh years of uh playing around with uh, audio quite well yeah definitely the encoding sounded great i think and i and and your music selections were good too yes and i hope to uh have a a different selection this time excellent so and uh i noticed that you know all the episodes of at the nexus tended to be in stereo at least the mp3 yes that's true so i managed to uh somehow avoid that well so one of the things like, i don't know if you want to get into it but one of the things we've had to struggle with here is how stereo works exactly so this mic i'm using right now that i'm talking to you with apparently is not a stereo microphone i don't think that many uh, microphones are well it turns out that who would know that because when you look at the pins for it there's three pins one of them is a ground which is obvious one of them should be left and the other one should be right but it turns out it doesn't work like that. No. Um, but yes, I do record everything here in stereo against the obvious wishes of Audacity. Um, and, and so then I also export them as joint stereo. So whatever works. Yes. And uh, I also used a variable bitrate encoding. Oh, yes. We, uh, I'm pretty sure we um, use a constant bitrate. Yes. Here. So, works. so then, uh, you know, for the silence... It uh, doesn't really use a whole lot. Uh, and then, you know, especially I think on your show it would be quite good because, you know, there's silent parts. Well, we do, um, uh, I think it's Sam's show it would be best. But um, <laughs> uh, in, at the Nexus, actually, I do uh, a, tr- a truncate silence. So usually we don't have, like, unnatural silences just taking up space. We usually have silences doing something useful. Yeah, I also uh, uh, had to edit my show uh, quite a bit. Yeah, um, I, I kind of came to the point where I don't edit the shows anymore. Yes, uh, as is the joke. Well, it's a joke, but it's not the truth, so that's how it usually goes. So, yeah, so yeah, with a variable bit rate, silence doesn't get a whole lot, or it's either silence or Matt is doing his thing. Yes.
let's uh, dive into the news. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, so I uh, heard you killed your show. I did kill my show, kind of, maybe, sort of, not really. Well, I don't care. Uh, you can do another 50 episodes. Uh, I might listen to all of them. I might even be a guest on them. But to me, your show is dead. Yeah, that's what I hear. As long as, as, long as you keep it in your memories fondly. And uh, I'm glad you're now calling it a gadget show. Yes, it is the new premier gadget show of the Nexus TV. Uh, there will be thousands of ga- gadgets throughout the next year. Look forward to it. Uh, I'm probably going to say this every episode, but back up your stuff, because uh, if you don't, bad things will happen. Yes, well, that that is very likely. So what is this uh, three rule, or rule of three? What is that? So uh, Scott Hanselman, a... Uh, a renowned developer, uh, believe he was sort of remotely involved with Stack Overflow, but uh, now he works at Microsoft on the ASP.NET team. Mm. Uh, he uh, posted a blog post this week uh, about backups, along with a rather disturbing image of a completely shattered hard drive. How did that manage to happen? Did he, like, take a hammer to it? Because that does not happen. Well, this this was not Scott's. Uh, oh, okay. This was someone else's. Okay. Looks like just a John Ross off of uh, Flickr. I see. You know, it's like, well, I think you can tell why this hard drive wasn't working right. Yes, I, I agree. I can see that. Well, see, what's, what's more so is that this guy's story was that he was giving a presentation when it started to make a funny noise, mm-hmm. blue-screened, and refused to boot. Of course. Because, you know, PowerPoints are very stressful. Yes. Yes. Uh, then again, it looks like that hard drive might only have been, like, 40 gigabytes. So yeah. that's a rather aged device. Mm-hmm. So the rule of three. So three copies of everything you care about, because two isn't enough if it's important. I agree. Uh, two different formats. Uh, for instance, uh, Dropbox and DVDs, or hard drive and a memory stick. Or a CD and a crash plan. Uh, so, cr- crash plan being a cloud backup service. So that that one is a little bit weird to me. I, I don't know. Like, I agree with two different formats, but it's weird that he includes um, crash plan and Dropbox in those things. Like, two different formats. It's, it's really weird. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I, I See, I, I, I do the same thing he proposes here, but I'll t- tell you after. Yeah, I'm not sure if he would consider two hard drives to be two yeah. different formats. Or... That's how I would. That's how I do it. Two different drives and then one offsite. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and the one being the offsite backup, because you know if you, it's great they have all these backups, but what if they're all in your house and right. say Hurricane Sandy happens, or if Hurricane Matthew Petchel happens? <laughs> um, although. Generally, with Sandy, you got a fair warning on that. But say, what if, what? look at this guy in my well jumping up and down. But uh, say, what if your house burns down? Right. While you're at work. Yeah. What? What? You run something similar to this, I imagine. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's good. So as I mentioned, I do have a server in my apartment. Good. I uh, have like three hard drives in there. I keep music on all three of them. Mm-hmm. Um, like my entire collection. Um, I have two two of those hard drives uh, I have on a network share. 
that is manually duplicated to uh, another hard drive of the exact same type uh, nightly. Oh, that's good. So I sort of wanted to do, uh, I forget what RAID number it is that mirrors everything. I don't do RAID, but yes. But I wanted to do that, but my motherboard that I stuck in there is so crappy that it doesn't even do that. Mm. So I sort of have to do it manually. Although How come you don't do like an R-Sync or something? Uh, I do have a scheduled uh, program that runs. It's not R-Sync. It's, okay. It's another you know thing that does well, yeah, pretty one much of the same things. thing. Right. So I run something and, kind and, of similar. And that's that's not all I have. Oh, you have more. Yes, I have an off-site backup at my parents' house, which is 149 miles away. Well, that's probably safe then. Yeah, and what do you I, use to do that? I figure that uh, you know if such a day would come that I wake up and both my stuff is gone and that backup is gone, chances are I have more important things to worry about, like what's for dinner. Yeah, or like the doom of the nation. But yes. Yeah, what's for dinner? <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> That's a terrible travesty. Um, I also uh, back a few things up to SkyDrive. Oh, really? SkyDrive. That's an interesting choice. Yes. Uh, well, I got into SkyDrive when it was still offering 25 gigabytes of storage. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I kind of lucked out on that. And back when, I think it was in March, uh, I'll have to put a link in here, that they reduced it to 7 gigs. But uh, the people who were already using it, they were nice enough to grandfather in the 25 mm-hmm. for free. Anyway, as you were saying. Well, so I have something kind of similar. So, of course... A few years ago, I decided to go fileless. Now, I know you've probably heard of people going paperless, but you mm-hmm. probably haven't heard of people going fileless. So I don't like files. Files are evil. You know what you have oh, to do so you files? Oh, so you bought into the Google mantra that files are evil. No, I don't even like files there. I hate, I hate having things. Things make things go wrong. See, if you don't have anything to go wrong, it can't go wrong. So in other words, you have nothing to back up. Right. So... I, I, it's not strictly true. It's almost true. I, I wish it were true. So in the old days, when I was a child and naive about files, I, I had a drive of maybe, like, I don't know, 250 gigs uh, full of crap. Just things I've accumulated over years. Uh, you know, ISOs of various things and, you know, all of my projects. You had a 250 gig hard drive when you were growing up? Well, I mean, yeah. Lucky. <laughs> okay. Um, Man, I mean, I can't tell you how many times that, you know, with a dinky 500 meg and then later a one and a half gig hard well, drive. Keep that, in mind that I'm not as old as you are. So we that, I'm a, that, I'm you a, know, few, a few generations ahead of where you were when you got stuff. Well, I don't think 250 gigabytes ahead. Well, okay. I don't but know. yeah, I can't can't tell you how many times that I was like, oh, I wanted to you know put another thing on the computer. Uh, what do I have to delete? Oh, I never had that issue. Well, so I, I I always used to store a lot of stuff, just all over the place, music and files and videos and pictures and all sorts of stuff. And then one year, it's like I'm done with this, never doing it again. Because literally, I would never read any of those files again. Like I would store them, but I would never use them. Right. So I, one day, I it was reformatting Windows, and at the same time, I unplugged the storage drive I had, and never looked back. Um, so, of course, things have changed in the last year. I actually do a lot of shows, a lot of podcasts, and I do need to store those somewhere, at least not to store them long-term, but at least to edit them. 
So I do have a drive now just for those, but I don't think of those as files for me. I think of those files for the network. But those files, they sync. They're on the computer here locally at, on this desktop, and then they sync to my server. And then since they're so huge, if I did want to back them up, I couldn't just use any old server, so I'd probably have to use something a little bit heftier. So if I were to back up my uh, single podcast files, which are usually range about 6 gigabytes in Audacity when the project is all done and said, um, well... It, I'd probably have to use Amazon Glacier for that. And uh, I recall that uh, uh, Jeff Atwood uh, posted a rather scathing blog post about how he lost his blog. Yeah, yeah, that happened a while ago, didn't it? Yeah, that was 2009. I was reading this blog post back then. Man, I have no life. Yeah, I just wanted to remind everyone that today is International Backup Awareness Day. Well, that's great. It is today. It is tomorrow. It is every day. Yes. Back up your stuff every day. Please consult your local external hard drive or cloud service provider today. Near you. Uh, going on here, uh, Google Fiber uh, finally goes live in Kansas City. Uh, apparently, they're not experiencing the gigabit speeds that were advertised. But well... But I, think it's, though, I think they're happy. But it's a heck of a lot more <laughs> than uh, what anyone else is offering, uh, right. at, least for, at least for a residential service. I'm reading the story here on Ars Technica, and uh, just the picture that, that is shown here, uh, I, I think the service is provided by Call, uh, which also does speedtest.net. Right. Um, yeah, the, 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 what looks weird to me is that the circle... I, I, I see I've never used the service, so I don't know how it works. Like, to, uh, I don't think it's speedtest.net. But that one isn't, but Okula does speedtest.net also. Yes. Yeah. So, but whatever one they're using here, this is, uh, it just so, looks funny. So how do you pronounce that word again? Ukala. Okay, well, I, I've always pronounced it Ukla. Okay, well. I know, I it sort of, sort of looks like it's Finnish. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. it's I don't like words that are hipster and evil. Um, so what do you think about having, uh, I don't know, 700 down? How, what, how does it compare to your Fios? Well, I'm not sure how it compares to Fios because I don't. I've never used a 700 megabit connection before. Well, what do you get? What is your Fios connection then? Uh, it's advertised for like a 50 over 25 megabit. Okay, that's pretty good. Though. But I but I can hit like 58 megabits. Right. So a little bit extra. Yeah, which is kind of weird because usually it's a little bit less. For... Well, you know, you're lucky because you know I can. I you know on the good days I can hit six. Wow, that's my margin of error. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, uh, speaking of Fios, uh, uh, if you recall that Hurricane Sandy blew through, and uh, uh, apparently everyone in lower, you know, lower Manhattan, uh, at least many people anyway, uh, still don't have power or uh, communication ability, and uh, they're tearing up the streets and whatnot. So Verizon is taking this opportunity to move everyone to Fios in Manhattan. Yeah, I think this is a great, great idea. Good time to do it. Uh, one of the reasons that fiber optic is so prohibitively expensive is between the permits and licensing in order to put it in the ground and then actual construction, digging things up, and then having traffic being rerouted for yeah. weeks on end, what better time than a natural disaster to actually improve uh, infrastructure? Yeah, I'm not sure like how their insurance is handling this, but uh, it definitely is a good idea. Yeah. And The Verge has a, uh, a picture story here that is just uh, 
tons of tubes uh, in an underground vault. And you can see all these copper wires that have just been soaked and have been destroyed. And you can, you know, mm-hmm. see, like, just this pile of wires. It sort of looks like, uh, like a lot of braided hair, uh, at this yeah, one. Yeah, definitely. And the next one, you just yeah, see... Yeah, that is a... And you just see, like, all these tubes coming out of the wall, so... Yeah, and, the internet is a series of tubes, so... Yes. Um, yes. and, of course, I believe, like, each one of these tubes goes to a certain building in Manhattan. Right. So, and, of course, the, uh, one benefit of, uh fiber optic cabling in a flood is that it's glass it's not copper Mm -hmm. so it will uh, resist uh, seawater much better the only problem with glass is that it can break easily and then once it's broken it's over uh however there has been advances on that front oh really yes i believe that believe that owens corning has uh, made a has made fiber glass that can withstand like pretty significant bends Oh, that's great. And we can, need that. You can even staple it. Oh. It's interesting. So you can go ahead and do the next story? Well, you know, if if, if you didn't have it and and, uh, and if you had slow internet like me, uh, you know, six megabits, you might want a GIF instead of a JPEG. But GIFs look terrible. Just absolutely atrocious. Indeed. So, uh, you know, your PNGs, of course, they, they're, they're lossless, so, you know, you might, uh, you might get a PNG, but of course it's going to be huge, so instead you might want a JPEG. So I hear the GIF is dying. Uh, I hear the number of GIFs on the internet right now uh, has fallen from 2010 from, at 41% to 29% today, or, well, two weeks ago. So that's a pretty significant drop. Yes, especially in the past year, like, apparently there's... You know, thirty-three or so percent less gifts out there. Yes. So you say gifts, I say gifs. Hmm. Hmm. I guess. I guess it might be a Minnesota Midwestern Pittsburgh thing. I guess. I don't know. I, I have. I have heard of some of your Pittsburghian. I don't even know if that's what it is. Pittsburghian uh, lingo. P- Pittsburghies. Oh, Pittsburghies. Is that what you call it? Okay. Yes. I see. So, um, what, do you, what do you know about the GIF and Long Live PNG? What do you, what do you know about that? Uh, well, because the drum has been beating for quite some time that PNG has been the is the true successor to the GIF, and it offers several features like uh, 24-bit color that uh, GIF simply does not do. No, not 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 your uh, 256 colors anymore. Need a few more than that. Well, PNG does support. 8-bit, uh, 256 uh, colors. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I, 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 there's, there's two reasons, really, that I think the GIF is really dying out, or, or three reasons I can think of. So in the old days, a lot of people used GIFs to um, do um, spacing with layouts on websites. So if you had tables, you need some GIFs to space them, and then if you did have any images on your website for the design, you'd use a GIF because it yeah. essentially takes up no room. Um, so since most websites are done with that now... Um, you know, they use CSS and other more advanced technologies to do layouts. GIFs are not there anymore. The next uh, reason, at least on publicly facing websites. I have well, worked on internal business apps that use spacer GIFs everywhere. Well, business apps, that's a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the other reason I can think of is that the internet has become faster uh, in the sense of Fios and high-speed DSL and high-speed cable. So 
conserving file size for the sake of quality is no longer a huge issue. Um, on the other hand, what happens to all of our animated cat GIFs? Well, I guess they will remain GIFs or be uh, left behind. I, I mean, I, I can't imagine a browser... Why, why, why don't they move those to YouTube where, you know, video is supposed to be there? Well, I think there's two reasons they don't move to YouTube, because it's not video, it's a moving picture. What? I mean, it's not video, it's a moving picture. It's it's not meant to be a thing you sit down for and ponder for a long period of time. It's just a thing that's moving on any page. Well, then so again, I, uh, animated GIFs do provide distraction like that. Yes, that's true. You know, I think um, you know, our stupid human eyes are you know drawn to motion. They are drawn yes. to changes in color, and we're also drawn to cats. Apparently, yeah. Um, the internet so is you, made of cats. That's true. Have you ever heard of APNG or MNG? Uh, I have. What do you? Why? Why don't you think those took off? Uh, simply because of well, I guess market fragmentation. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, also I, GIFs. I looked into that, and I'm not sure which one is which, but Mozilla chose one. Yes, uh, Mozilla chose APNG a couple of years ago. And uh, apparently no one else decided no. to choose that. Literally no one. And I'm not sure if any of the other browsers support the other one either. No, n- nobody supports MNG uh, anywhere, universally, except in Japan. Yeah, it, it's too bad. Um, uh, you, you also noted here that the W3C... Uh, and other standard organizations need to get their act together, and that is definitely true. They definitely need a successor to the GIF yeah, that everybody will just implement flat. Yeah, I'm not sure if the W3C is even in charge of PNG, or they could be if they wanted to, or or if it's just ISO. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure actually. I know it has an ISO number. Yeah, uh, but uh, I'm not sure if the W3C would be in charge of an animated ping. If they wanted to, they could do it. They can do whatever they want. So with PNG and GIF out of the way, that leaves JPEG. Let's talk a little hard math here. This looks hard. Do you know anything about a discrete cosine transform? I don't know anything about the word discrete or transform. I know what a cosine is. Does that help? Yes, I do too. Good. So a uh, discrete cosine transforms, the applications that use this algorithm are everywhere. In fact, uh, we're using them right now. In fact, our listeners are using them right now because they are heavily used in audio compression. And they are also uh, used heavily in JPEG and other image and video uh, compression. I've always wondered how JPEG works, and I came across an article that explains how it does it. And I've always noticed that uh, below a certain point, you can see these blocks Mm -hmm. in a JPEG image. Well, isn't there a name for that? It's... um... Artifacts. That's what it is. So what JPEG does is that it divides an image up into 16 by 16 blocks. Uh, So that means that there's 256 pixels to each one. And it uh, orders them in sort of a zigzag pattern. It sort of zigzags across this uh, block here. And it plots them out on a graph. And it does uh, some, I believe it's a color space transformation. Uh at least on the encode side, let's be clear on this, we're talking about encoding an image into JPEG mm-hmm. for the moment. So it takes the red, green, and blue values and converts them into, uh, I believe it's a YCBCR color space, uh, which is a different way of representing color. 
and, you know, like, white and black and all that. Mm-hmm. So it plots these values out on a graph, and it starts breaking this line of values into its constituent frequencies. So it uh, generates these cosines into, uh, you know, a graph that sort of approximates uh, these values. And uh, the key word here is approximate, because, uh, you know, it's, it's not going to get it exactly, just using uh, mathematical cosines to do this. Uh, so that what makes uh, JPEG a lossy format. Right, but, that makes sense. But uh, given enough of these cosines, it actually, you know, turns out kind of good. Uh, and obviously the more cosines that you use to describe a block of pixels, the bigger the file size. Uh, are you on this uh, page? Yes, I am. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, maybe about two-thirds of the way down you'll find uh, Lena, uh, yep. which which is the, uh, I believe it's described as the first lady of the internet. It's uh, the woman with the hat. Mm-hmm. I suppose that this is the first image uh, that was ever encoded using JPEG. And uh, as you can see, it's you know has quite a bit of smooth gradients, but also has a bit of detail in it, too. Yeah, definitely. So if you scroll down a little bit further, you'll see a black and white image. Let's see, the, the author... Oh. Mm-hmm. You see that? Yep. Okay, so the, the author of this paper, he uh, you know did a picture of himself and did a high... Uh, pass filter over this image so it gets all the high frequency values uh, and uh, so you can sort of see a faint outline of this guy mm-hmm. so Ryan what I want you to do right now is I want you to uh, get up and move 15 feet away from your monitor look back and tell me what you see I could try doing that let's see do I have 15 feet here Well, personally, I just see a big blob. I, I Close up, I see him and his eyes, and far away, I just see blobs. Okay. So, I was really hoping that you'd, uh, you know, cooperate with me. But uh, if you remember Lena from above, uh, he also took a low-pass uh, filter over her and combined uh, his high-pass and the other low-pass image and combined the two. So this is more of a function of your eye. Ah, I do see it now that I step back. Yeah. So Further. So uh, you know, it's it's uh, more of a function of your eye that does this that mm-hmm. if you're uh looking pretty close at an object, you only see the very fine grain detail, which makes sense. But if and your uh brain discards everything else, but if you're uh, you know, looking at it from far away, you don't see that detail. You see, you know, the blurry thing that's behind it. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was the second coolest thing that I saw this week. Yeah, definitely. That is uh, a fascinating thing. Yeah, compression, and especially image compression, is very interesting. Yes. And, uh, you know, so instead of uh, creating that 16 by 16 block of pixels, if you take say, samples of sound, 
and you plot them out and you convert them into frequencies. You can also do this uh, discrete cosine transform on sound as well. Mm-hmm. And that's what MP3 does. Exactly. And pretty much the basis of every sound compression algorithm out there. So that's that's some uh, pretty hard and pretty cool computer science there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's. And so I noticed on that same page there's also a bunch of uh, matrices. And, of course, I'm in linear algebra, and so I understand what some of that is doing. So that's kind of cool. Yep. So going along here, uh, apparently, uh, you know Linus Torvald? You know you know the guy who hates NVIDIA? Well, <laughs> you know, normally you'd credit him for writing a lot of code and then probably reading quite a bit, too. Well, he's not doing any code reading anymore, apparently. You don't and so say. Th- and then there's this interview, I believe... Um, uh, this interview here is really long, and I didn't actually read it, but there's there's an interview yep. in which he says that he's not reading code anymore. You know, also, Secure Boot used to be this big thing with Windows 8. Uh, a lot of vendors were going to be launching simultaneously e, uh, UEFI, and UFEI also has a thing called Secure Boot, and Secure Boot essentially means that the operating system has to have a digital certificate that is signed along with it. And, of course, you know, being poor, a lot of open-source things can't just go out and get a certificate. Secure Boot would essentially limit um, the, the boot sectors from, you know, changing. And right. also, uh, you know, other operating systems, aside from Windows, that is rich by Microsoft, uh, from running. So, and so, apparently, uh, Linus Torvald is not opposed. Yeah, which is strange. Yes, yeah, very uh, but- strange. But I can probably tell you who definitely is opposed oh, to Secure Boot. I, I can imagine. Richard Stallman. Oh, how surprising. Yes, the Taliban of open source uh, returns <laughs> again. That is such an apt description. Yes. You know, he's uh, obviously against anyone else controlling his computer, everyone's computers. Uh, yes. uh, both uh, software, obviously, and hardware, since he apparently runs this uh, Chinese laptop that has an open uh, BIOS. Um, and uh, read an article today that he is totally against the idea of software patents, which is not surprising. But he, uh, in this uh, news article here on Ars Technica, he also said some uh, rather surprising, observant, but sort of not really surprising uh, comments uh, that uh, apparently uh, completely solving a problem is uh, radical and innovative. Huh, who thought of that? I can't believe it. I would have never thought of that. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, basically a story of him going to a uh, software conference, and uh, or was it a patent thing, that uh, you know, he just basically stands up and you know, says, you know, you're wrong about uh, patents and all yeah, this. We can't, we can't do a compromise. We have to do it all the way. Yeah, he's really good at uh, doing this kind of thing. And so on that page, there's a picture of him with a with a like a button pin, mm-hmm. and it says, "Don't be tracked, pay cash." Yep. Yeah. So that's that. This is right in line with what he's going for. So uh, it was several years ago that uh, Intel decided that it wanted to break back into the graphics market. This was maybe 2008 or so, and they had this experiment going on called Larrabee. Hmm. And, uh, you know, it was supposed to be, you know, heralding the comeback of ray tracing. Uh, unfortunately, that didn't really happen. Uh, but it did get uh, repurposed. 
Uh, it's, uh, so if you remember the uh, story we had on uh, Itanium last week yep. and uh, Xeons, uh, well, we can forget about all that and go for Xeon Phi. Uh, this is essentially a add-in card. It's not really a CPU, but it's mm-hmm. an add-on accelerator card that has uh, 50 processing cores on it. Wow. These are x86 uh, process, uh, architecture cores. Which is impressive. Yes, and it's essentially... So how is it Itanium, then? Uh, well, we were talking about Itanium last week. Oh, Forget okay. about that. So it's like a contrast. Okay. I so, was confused. Well, sorry. Um, so this is essentially what became of Larrabee. So it has GDDR5, which is quite impressive. Yes, that is uh, graphics uh, memory. Mm-hmm. Eight gigabytes of it, too. Uh, so, I don't think we'll be seeing this in any retail markets anytime soon. If you can even afford it. Uh, apparently, it's like $2,600. Sounds expensive. I, I mean, don't know. I'm not going to buy that. Uh, me neither, especially okay. not at that price. Yeah, I don't think so. Well, uh, so, do you know... You know, I, I we were just talking about somebody who really values their privacy. Well, you know, Facebook apparently wants to value your privacy, too. Uh, and apparently they're going to be turning on HTTPS, you know, secure browsing, right. for all their users. But but you know, let me tell you something. I was reading this story today, and I'll put it in the notes after the show, uh, since it's related to Facebook. Apparently today there's this thing on Facebook where Facebook is changing part of their governance uh, terms of service thing. So in the past, whenever Facebook wanted to change how the terms worked, um, you could vote on them. So it, it, the vote was either like a comment or a like or just saying yes or no to a question, and then that would be your vote. Well, the the thing that Facebook wants you to not vote on right now is the rewriting of a portion that would allow them to not let you vote anymore. So, yeah, so great. Really? So they can change the service any way they want. And you can't vote on it unless you uh, go and comment on the thing where they've proposed these changes, in which case a vote will be triggered, in which case you get to vote on your right to vote or not vote. So you mentioned that you had used JavaScript before. Yes, I use JavaScript all the time. Well, I came across a uh, website that spits up uh, random portions, random snippets of JavaScript and says, what's wrong with this? Hmm. How does that work? Uh, well, you go to codewa.rs. Codewa. <laughs> okay, let's see. Take the initiation. What is wrong? Well, it doesn't have a return value. Oh, it wants me to type in the right thing. Okay. Yes. Okay, so, oh, crap, prototypes. Man, words. Um, Anyways. Wow, this is fun. Yes. <laughs> I could uh, do this all day. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I was at work when I stumbled across that, so I had to, you know, put it off. So, you know Sony. Yes. The, uh, you know, the people that make the PS3. Yes, I have heard of them. Yes. I own one, in fact. Oh. Yes, because uh, you're obviously obsessed with Journey. Yeah, see, even you know the Journey joke. Um, so there's, uh, there's an article that uh, points out... The fact that Sony is uh, way into debt, uh, far much so than uh, other tech companies, and that uh, what's called a uh, debt-to-asset ratio is not really uh, in the in Sony's favor here. 
and that uh, Sony could essentially uh, go bankrupt at any moment if things don't change. And it uh, uh, basically points out the fact that uh, engineers have been running this company, uh, which, you know, for me, you know, it sounds like a good thing. Uh, but apparently it went a little bit too far. So, uh, like, especially with the uh, PS3, uh, you know, had a lot of uh, hot technology at the time. So even though mm-hmm, it uh, even though it debuted at as the most expensive console ever, uh, at what like six hundred dollars? Yeah. Well, at least at the time, right? Uh, its real cost was still further, you know, higher than that, and mm-hmm. Sony had to take a you know hundred. Let's see, I'm, I forget how many hundreds of dollars of losses on each one, and uh, you know, fast forward to today, that uh, the Vita. Is sort of suffers from the same problem. There, the thing is t- covered with touchscreens. Right. You know well, that yeah, sounds this... that sounds cool, but you know, uh, it's all about functionality that people want. Mm-hmm. Sony's had this trouble uh, along for a long time now, and and so after the PS2, which was probably the most successful console of any generation. Um, the PS2 sold everywhere. It was practically everywhere. Yeah. It, it, it eclipsed the Xbox, which was great because it had the Halo on it, but it, it, just, it just had more games that more people could enjoy. And it was uh, a- specifically third party games. <laughs> yes, that too. Um, and the, the, the problem that, that Sony, Sony faced was making a second PS2, and they thought their way into that would be by making really, really great hardware. Uh, but the problem was that they they overpriced their hardware. Well, I think the problem it. was was that they thought that the PS2 sold because of the hardware. Right. That, that was not the case. And so they they overpriced their console because they had to make up the shortfall by using such expensive parts because they thought the hardware was what made them great, and because it was so expensive, not enough people bought it, so they couldn't lower prices fast enough because they weren't making enough. So it was all a vicious cycle of doom. So and it also goes into all of the uh, proprietary formats that Sony has done. Yes, and it's really too bad. Yeah, which uh, really isn't that bad, at least the proprietary formats anyway, because uh, several ubiquitous uh, data formats have come out of Sony. Uh, for instance, the compact disc, the three and a half inch floppy. Uh, you know, people always point to the fact that Betamax lost against the VHS. You know, back way before I was even thought about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, Sony has had successful formats. Yeah, and, and I, I don't I don't mind Sony products, and I don't mind their proprietary lock-in either, really. Uh, not a big deal to me. Although their memory sticks are sort of stupid. It is, but it's not that bad. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure what, the, what problem they have with SD cards. Mm-hmm. So... Well, you think they wouldn't mind, because it starts with an S, and so does Sony. Well, so... Uh, Speaking of failure... Yes. You know, uh, last week, at the Nexus was all about talking about this impending failure. So, you know, Windows 8 just came out, and their their uh, their guy who made it, Steven Sanofsky, decided just to go out and leave. And a lot of people think that Windows 8 is a failure in itself, because it doesn't make sense. Uh, yes. The way they deployed it, and you know, not to mention the whole uh, Metro thing 
or exactly. excuse me, modern UI thing. Oh, you mean Windows Store or Windows 8 Store style app UI. That's what you mean, right? Yeah, I think yeah. they've actually referred to it as modern UI before. Yeah, they they refer to it as a lot of things. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure <laughs> if they're just confused or what. <laughs> but uh, this article here that we have uh, basically points to the fact that the cost to leave the Microsoft ecosystem has been lower than it has ever before. Yes, definitely. Uh, especially with uh, you know Google Docs replacing uh, Office and uh, Gmail replacing Exchange, and uh, along with all the other Apple uh, solutions. You know, it's 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 interesting because Google Docs replaces part of what Office does. So, like, let's just take doc, documents and then Word. Like, if I'm in college and I need to format a paper with MLA standards or APA standards or Chicago standards, Google Docs is not going to be usable for me. I, I cannot use Google Docs to do formatting with certain standards uh, for, like, college papers or high school papers. So, and the same goes for uh, spreadsheets. I mean, a lot of people don't use formulas, but if you need to use formulas that are very complicated – Spreadsheets probably isn't going to be what you need. So Office has a place. Um, so, I mean, it, it's not like all doom and gloom, but it's close. Yep. When time comes, you know, for you to, you know, have interviews or give them, uh, I've been through several interviews myself, and uh, especially recently I've been uh, uh, giving them out instead of actually, you know, being on the receiving end. Uh, there's a... Uh, a, I wouldn't say a thing, but, you know, there's, well, I guess it is a thing, um, called a FizzBuzz. It's yes. a small, it's a small test, uh, of programming skill. It's not that difficult. No. Uh, that is if you know how to program. Uh, and, uh, apparently people who apply to programming jobs don't know how to program. I, 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 I wrote the code in my head now and I don't see what the hard part about this is. Yeah, um, it's, you know, even though it's been around for years and years, it still works. I uh, guess people uh, haven't really decided that if you don't program, you probably won't make a good programmer. Yeah, this is very strange, because this looks very simple. You know, uh, never mind the fact that, you know, uh, granted, you know, programming is part of the job, uh, IT is all about people, you know, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that is true. We also have the uh, famous post by uh, Jeff Atwood hmm, about that as well. Well, so apparently, now, I didn't know this, but uh, when I was in ninth grade, so my first year in high school, I gave my computer teacher this fuzzbuzz prompt, and I told him to do it. I don't think he did it, but then years later, he's telling me about this fuzzbuzz program that he had just found on the internet, and it's like, really now? <laughs> yeah, um... It was sort of interesting that when uh, Jeff posted about that, that everyone needed to solve it. Yeah. <laughs> so is uh, that I'm not sure how many comments are on that post of his. Lots, I'm sure. Moving over to other news now. Uh, you know about WordPress, don't you? Oh, yes, I do know word about WordPress. I use it all the time. So WordPress.com, the non-self-hosted solution for WordPress. So if you just want to blog and you don't want to do any work, well, if you are a blogger and you happen to live in a warring country with no way to pay, you know, your WordPress bills, you can now use Bitcoin. 
And uh, so this will be the way you can anonymously pay with security and um, freedom. I don't think uh, Stallman would approve of this, though. I don't think he likes paying for things in any case, unless Uh, he can pay with cash. Well, if Bitcoin is open source, uh, he might not have a problem with it. Um, I don't know. Maybe. So, uh, speaking of Bitcoin, if you want to uh, mine Bitcoins, that is, to make them... Uh, it might not be so much worth your time uh, pretty soon uh, because there will be uh, custom uh, application-specific integrated circuits yeah. that will make the Bitcoin mining much faster. Yeah, and apparently that the reason these are coming out now is because soon, I, I don't know when, I think it said December, but it might be next year. I don't know if it's this year, but sometime soon the rate of return is going to go down by half. So now whenever you solve one of the problems and that whenever you solve the math problem, you get a bunch of Bitcoins, you get 50 Bitcoins. Um, sometime soon that rate is going to get cut in half. So uh, yeah, what, what they're doing is basically stopping uh, as many coins to enter into circulation. Right. And so, of course, that means people get not poor, but the, the amount of work you have to do will be twice as much to get the same amount of money. So that'll be so much fun. But then that means that uh, Bitcoins, uh, it could go through a cycle of deflation. Right. Uh, which means that the value of your money goes up. So is there a way for the rate to go back up in the future? Uh, I'm not sure. Because I'm pretty sure this was a pre-programmed thing. That's just how it works. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And after a while, like there's not going to be any more to be generated. Right. So I don't know if this is a market you really want to get into. So, well, uh, as I hear that uh, there have been Bitcoin mining accidents, believe it or not. I have not heard of that. Yes. Uh, you know, it's sort of a misnomer because there's not actually a hole in the ground that you go into. Uh, but there's a story about uh, some dude, I think it was like actually from 4chan, actually, that uh, uh, he was running... Wow a lot of graphics cards in his uh, room and he said that it was sort of warm but it was still bearable Hmm. and he said he was running four computers with uh, multiple uh, high-end Radeon graphics cards uh, to crunch numbers yeah and one day it just kind of got sort of warm and you know has uh, you know speaking for myself I kind of like to sleep Sometimes uh, during the day, especially on the weekends, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he just took an afternoon nap and uh, woke up with minor permanent brain damage wow. because he suffered heat stroke. That's terrible. And all from Bitcoin. Uh, all from Bitcoin mining. Yeah. Mm-hmm. See, look at this. Mining can hurt you even when you're not in a mine. Yep. And uh, so you have all these computers running. You're generating a lot of heat. Uh, so someone might get a little suspicious about what you're doing. Oh, you could be cooking drugs, of course. Yeah, uh, you could be growing drugs. Uh, I forget where this was, but uh, someone actually had a visit from the police because they were uh, monitoring uh, power usage and he, the police suspected that uh, this guy was going doing a growing operation for marijuana except he wasn't growing anything he was mining bitcoins that's very interesting i uh, i wonder okay so it said uh the canadian town of mission 
British Columbia. So I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that it didn't happen here, and probably nobody here knows what a Bitcoin is. Nobody in the real world knows what a Bitcoin is, so that's right. pretty hard, pretty difficult. So speaking of difficult things, playing Netflix on any computer but a Windows PC or a Mac is pretty much impossible until now, because apparently Silverlight will now work in Wine just fine. And Wine being the... Uh the compatibility layer to run Windows apps on Linux. And I'm surprised that Wine has compatibility for Silverlight, but I suppose that makes sense. Yep. Uh, Wine has actually advanced uh, quite far in the past five years. Yes, it has. I actually did manage to get Guild Wars 1 to run on it once. Nice. I was impressed, yes. And it is now available in a uh, personal package archive uh, for downloading. I believe the... uh, the part of the reason that uh, Netflix uses uh, Silverlight is because Silverlight has quite a bit of uh, DRM capability in it. Yep, that is correct. So you can't exactly copy it out when you stream it. No. Uh, it's bad, because uh, Richard Stallman says it's bad. <laughs> it's probably true, then. Um, and uh, if you uh, recall that uh, the Wii U uh, recently launched... Yep. And uh, there's DRM up the wazoo on that thing. All, all over. Very, very bad stories about it already. And an Ars Technica writer uh, explains his uh, difficulties in trying to get the downloadable games off of his old, I think it was like the release generation Wii that he yeah, had. Yeah, it was the first one. Uh, and transfers it to his uh, new Wii U. Uh, but uh, something stands in the way. And so what, what happened was... Uh, he had uh, the, you, you download two programs, one on the old Wii and one on the new Wii U, and then you you take your memory card or memory thingy-majig, and uh, maybe it was an SD card. I'm not. I'm not I, I think so. Actually, yeah, instead yeah. an SD card. Uh, and so then what what happened is you put it into your Wii and you copy all the things on there. But what it says to you is that do not turn off your Wii and do not do anything to mess this up because. Once these are copied here, they're deleted from system space, system memory, system storage, and they only exist on the card. Um, and so then, while he was transferring, apparently there was a memory reading error, yeah. and the, the 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 transfer failed. And of course, you know that makes you worry because it says, "Don't mess this up because it's over." Uh, luckily. It didn't delete at the time, yet it didn't get to the point where it would be deleted, but of course, he never was able to recover that stuff because apparently the drive just died or something. Yeah, and it doesn't look like there's any kind of progress bar on the screen at all. Right. So, like, I believe he said it was like a memory uh, read error or something on a save game file. Right. And that's... uh, It's absurd that... that, and, And so Nintendo said... Well, unless you pay, what, like $80 to get it fixed, you're not getting your stuff. Yeah, and the whole thing about this is that they made this entirely too complicated system uh, where you have to stick this card into the Wii U first, Mm -hmm. and then stick it into the Wii, and then back into the Wii U. Right. I mean... You know, can't we all just download stuff from the cloud now? Exactly. I thought that was the point of having the virtual console. Like, you download them, don't you? Isn't that the point? Yeah. Yeah, I don't... I, I think... That, see, Nintendo has not been, uh, uh, you know, a leader in this internet-based society that we live in. Well, I think they're a little bit better at it than Sony. 
I don't know. I mean, it, 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 it's hard. That to might say. be why Sony is failing too. I don't know. I think Sony actually does a pretty decent job. Oh, I'm being hailed. Oh no. Um, um, I think Sony does a pretty decent job uh, with their internet services. Well, there was that time they got totally hacked. Huh, well, that is true. And you know what else is bad? Everything. Vendor lock-in. Oh, no. Uh, this is especially bad when the government mandates it. Okay. Uh, just ask uh, South Korea and uh, Freiburg, a uh, city in Germany. Uh, South Korea's problem is that it's using an encryption algorithm for online transactions uh, that uh, apparently requires uh, ActiveX. You know, that old, busted, insecure technology? So you mean the failure, the precursor to Silverlight? You mean that one? Yeah. Yeah, I know that one. I believe there's a candidate over there running for office that says that uh, he's going to do away with this. Hmm. That's interesting. You know, vendor lock-in is a problem that that we don't experience too much here, but but if, if it happens, it's terrible. Freeberg's problem is actually open office. Uh, and that they uh, that the city has mandated that they use open office, which on the surface sounds you know completely reasonable, uh, but uh, apparently there's file incompatibilities with uh, old versions of uh, Microsoft Office that other people use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see, I, I, as a government, it's just an ignorant thing to do this kind of thing. I would never uh, allow this to happen. So uh, you know. The, apparently, this is some Linux news, and I don't know anything about Linux. But here's what I here's what I can tell you: that BSD, something about BSD. So, large scale open source projects are being increasingly less concerned about porting to non Linux systems. So, I think what that means is that if things are compatible, then it doesn't really matter. And so, back in the day, uh, Postix compatibility was uh, what allowed Unix and Linux and BSE to coexist together and still be the independent operating systems but still work together. Yep. So so now I guess uh, the trend is to not care so much about that. And, and to some degree, I think that's fine because, you know, it's 25 years later. I think it's time to move on. On the other hand, I love my Unix terminal. Yep. Uh, so the uh, I believe it's uh, someone... Uh, from uh, Linux Weekly News, uh, he had worked on BSD way back in the day, like especially right around when Linux was first getting started back in '91 or so. Uh, he was working on BSD, and now he's uh, you know working on Linux, and uh, you know he's you know arguing against this uh, monoculture of Linux in the uh, open source world. So he's uh, complaining that uh, Linux is crowding out all these other free operating systems like BSD. I don't know. For for my purposes, BSD might as well be Linux. And it's, you know, the exact same effect that happened, you know, at the end of the 90s and the beginning of the 2000s, uh, because uh, uh, Internet Explorer 6 was the dominant web browser. So people started coding to it. People started coding to its bugs. So it was sort of hard to move out of that. Right. So, and uh, talking about being crowded out, uh, you know the Cherokee language? I have heard of that. Yes. Uh, I don't speak it myself, but I'm aware of it. And uh, to help promote it, uh, Gmail is now available in Cherokee. Now, isn't this their 57th language they've added? 
Is that yes. what it was? Yes. And the uh, first Native American language. That's very interesting. I I, I um I would hate to have to translate all of Gmail into another language, let alone any other application. So, I don't know. Good for them. Yep. I, have you ever seen... I don't remember what service. I think it was Facebook. But they had a language called Bork, Bork, Bork. I don't um, know what it did, but it's, it was funny. Yes, uh, Google also has uh, several joke languages like that. Yeah. I believe they mm-hmm. have a pirate one. Yep. That's cool. So it's uh, it seems that uh, Google has uh, a rather uh, rather sophisticated internationalization and localization uh, framework built mm-hmm. into their apps. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so, and uh, at my current job, uh, we were sort of thinking about that and how we were going to do it. So it's uh, very important to businesses, at least, uh, when they want to expand into foreign markets, because. Uh, you know the the way that uh, we represent dates over here in America is not the same way that they represent dates in Europe. It's uh, the same thing with uh, currency. Yeah, see, the currency conversion is even worse because not only do you have to do symbols and words, you have to also figure out the numbers and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, and commas and periods and such. Yeah. Microsoft, uh, speaking about IE6 earlier, uh, Microsoft thinks that WebKit will be the next uh, Internet Explorer 6. Yes, and, you know, of course Microsoft thinks that because it's probably going to be true. And, uh, and, and so saying WebKit makes you immediately think of what? Yes, uh, WebKit is the underlying code that runs Safari and Chrome. Yes, and, but unfortunately it runs one more thing that nobody ever thinks about. It's not just Chrome that it runs on. It also runs Browser. The horrible piece of crap browser that powers Android handsets below Android 4.1. And pretty much every mobile browser as well. Yes, but the worst one is, of course, anything below, like, iOS 5, so any Safari below iOS 5, and anything below, um, like, Android 4.1, anything below those, it is essentially the doom of, you know browsers like there are no features there's no support and they will guaranteed to never be updated so microsoft doesn't want this to happen i can see why so they're trying to encourage uh, uh developers to test their mobile websites with internet explorer <laughs> no not gonna happen well i hear that it is uh quite an improvement over previous internet explorers uh speaking of which a preview is coming to windows 7 yes i've heard of that um so when I talked about it last week, it hadn't happened yet. So is it fully out now, like the preview? Uh, I haven't checked yet. And I, I feel like I did check, and I thought it was. But, of course, I have been misled before. So. Uh, but So one of the sad things about uh, Internet Explorer 10 uh, is that it, it's not supported on anything before Windows 7. So all of these sad people in the world still running Windows XP, which I mean by all of them... Uh, well, you know, they're never going to get it. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of uh, the past, <laughs> a uh, big old computer from the uh, early 50s, I believe, is uh, being brought out of storage and has been cleaned up, and it will be turned on, and it will be the world's oldest working computer, and it's called the Witch, and that is an acronym uh, of course. Oh, okay. Because I, I, I read read this story briefly, and I did not know that was an acronym. Yes. So it's uh, going to be on display at a museum over in England. Oh, huh, interesting. 
and uh, it was originally built to uh, power uh, atomic energy research. Hmm. Well, I mean, where so where was the computer up until now? Like, just being in storage, or...? Just... Uh, actually, it was in a museum for 24 years until 1997. Okay. And the museum somehow closed. This article doesn't exactly say why it did. And... Uh, one of the trustees of that museum uh, saw photos of this uh, machine, and uh, he apparently had uh, found it in storage. Oh, well, that's said, a good thing to find. And said, you know, hey, this is an important part of early computing history that, uh, you know, should be preserved mm-hmm. and be shown. Uh, the uh, So it's going to, it's called The Witch, uh, that is the Wolverhampton Instrument for Teaching Computation from Harwell. Huh. Wow. I, I would never have got that. Yep. Oh. So, uh, you know, I, I, I don't use anything but Apache, but let me tell you something. Apache's not really that fast. In fact, it's really horribly slow, agonizingly, as slow as you can believe. So, you know what I thought the fastest one here would be? I thought it would be Nix, but it's not. What is the fastest server? Uh, well, it's uh, either uh, Light TPD or mm-hmm. Nginx. Yeah, I, I thought for sure it was um, Nix. Um, uh, uh, that was my choice, but apparently it's not. Oh, and it also depends uh, specifically on what you're doing. So my biggest problem with using a non-Apache server for serving is basically I don't know how to use it. In, so you know uh, you've probably used mod rewrite once or twice. Uh, actually, I ha- really haven't worked with Apache at all. Okay, well you're not missing out on anything because it's a travesty. But if you have, you would know that most of the internet also has. So it's really easy to find snippets and really easy to learn. Unfortunately, not so many people use Nix or Light HTTP. So the problem is it's much harder to learn. And uh, now for the coolest thing that I have seen all week. So soon there will be uh, some software out there uh, that will allow you to use a Connect. You remember Connect, right? Yes, of course. It's that little thing on top uh, that you know you can connect up to your Xbox. Yeah, and then it sits on your TV and watches you. Yeah, it uh, has you know both a webcam and a depth camera, and uh, you can soon be able to buy some software that uh, you can you know use with a Connect. And you'll be able to map your face to a video game character. Mm, yes. And uh, it does it actually pretty well. And it's uh, sort of creepy how it, uh, you know, how well it works. You know, and it's almost real time. It's very responsive. Yeah. What I think is funny is in the video that I'm watching here on Polygon, um, you know, the, the guy is, of course, moving, you know, his mouth. But... Um, I think it's being displayed on a Mac. Yeah. Yeah, that's just kind of ironic in a way. Well, not so much because uh, back when the Kinect was first released, uh, there was a Linux driver uh, that came out within like a week or so. Oh, that's good. And, uh, you know, people figured out, you know, how to use it and how to decipher the depth and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I remember, uh, you know, uh, tracking this for a while. And it was one of the first things that came out that, uh, you know, this dude, you know, had uh, trans- translated the 3D depth information from the Kinect back into real 3D space. So 
it was you know it used uh, you know a GPU and used 3D APIs and stuff. You could fly around his room, sort of. It was really only him sitting at his desk and the wall behind him. But you know, you could see how this could work. Oh yeah, definitely. And in fact, he had a box on his desk, and I have this link right here that he had a box on his desk, and he takes the box off, and he has a monster on his desk. That was really cool. Oh, that is pretty cool. And it just, uh, you know, stands there, and and it knows things. Yeah. Unfortunately, it is uh, fake, so his hand just goes right through it. Of course. And, of course, it's also being captured by the um, Kinect camera, which makes everything look hilarious. Yeah. But that is pretty cool. I like it. Yeah. And uh, there's also a connecthacks.com that uh, shows plenty of more interesting things. And then, of course, this goes back to our, uh, you know, JPEG compression, knowing yes. math. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, computer science, the uh, deeper you get into it, the more difficult it is, uh, the cooler it gets. I maintain that the Kinect is hands down the coolest thing that has ever come out of Microsoft ever. You know, if I actually personally used one, I probably would say something like that. But since I haven't, I don't know yet. So at least at least the things that uh, people are trying to do with it. Right. They are, they, I'm glad Microsoft is really open and really catering to the, I don't know, experimental crowd because there's nothing worse than cutting off really cool things too early in development. Yep. Since uh, Thanksgiving is pretty soon, in fact, it may be even the day that we release this podcast. It might even be that way. As we are recording on the Wednesday beforehand, Mm -hmm. uh, it'll be Thanksgiving. Yeah. So, can you tell us uh, something that you absolutely are thankful for, that you appreciate? Yes, actually, I, I do have something to say about that. You know... For years I've been doing this programming thing, you know, uh, some web development here and there, some Java here and there, some PHP all over here and there, and, you know, I've I've known how assembly kind of sort of worked. I've seen assembly codes, I've seen some op codes, like, you know, I've seen the raw stuff, but I had no no literal clue of how it actually worked to worked, especially with hardware. And so, this year, I think I'm thankful for, most of all, my new appreciation of assembly and the underlying architectures that make assembly, you know, go through uh, into the processor and actually make things happen, whether that's moving from a register, moving into a memory location, um, doing math, um, you know, logic. And now now when I read PHP even, I, I'm thinking about, like, hmm, look, so this PHP makes this C, which makes this opcode in assembly, and then it does this thing. It's pretty cool. Wow. And, and so this, this all happened because I'm in this uh, machine architecture class, and it, it's really great. I, I, I'm enjoying it a lot. 
Yeah, I never really uh, got down that low. Apparently, this is um, this is a two thousand level course, and so the the end of your uh, the end when you get your major, you're at eight thousand levels. So this is actually a really early course in the program. So it's kind of interesting. And uh, something that I am thankful for, I am thankful to have a job in the uh, information technology business. Because uh, it seems that, uh, especially these days, it seems like no one else has a job anywhere. Yes, definitely. And, uh, Ryan, when I was on your show, uh, do you remember me talking about monitors? I do remember that, yes. Uh, spe- specifically... Actually, if you total them all by half four, uh, two here in my apartment and two at work. That's pretty good. Yeah, oh. so I'm not. I'm sort of dreading the time where I have to steal my own monitors out oh, of work. Yeah, that'll that'll look suspicious. Well, apparently that's going to happen pretty soon. Why because, is that going to happen? Because just recently I have accepted a, another job offer. Oh, really? I'll be leaving my current job and going to another one. Huh? Right now I am working at a recent acquisition of Aetna um, that, uh, you know, does... You know, sort of boring stuff uh, tracks uh, uh, like employee leaves, mm-hmm. and uh, now I'm going to be totally switching gears and uh, doing e-commerce websites. Oh, really? Yes, I. Uh, That's a big that... jump. Yes, and I hope that uh, this will be the job that I have been looking for. What what job are you looking for? Uh, well, something that uh, definitely faces regular people. Okay, yes, definitely. It's much more interesting when it faces humans, yes. Yes, uh, instead of employees. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, specifically somewhere that the design of the uh, website is important. So are you going to be uh, doing the same kind of Java-based work, too? Sort of glad that you asked that, because no, I'm not. Oh, really? I'm going to be using... Uh, uh, this company specializes in uh, demandware, uh, which is a, a something as a service. I'm not sure which one it is, uh, software or platform yes. or something. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised that some architecture astronaut somewhere hasn't come up with services as a service. I'm sure somebody has. But yeah, that's crazy. Um, and that uh, doesn't use Java. It uses like their own proprietary script. That's but, very interesting. Uh, uh, the interesting thing is, is that the people who work there right now have a, uh, a history of Java, so it seems like it'll fit right in. So is that is that a local thing where you live right now, or are you are you moving somewhere else? Uh, the job I have right now, I have a pretty sweet commute. Uh, it's maybe four miles down the freeway. Well, that's pretty good. Yeah, it takes fifteen minutes tops. Yeah, that's great. Uh, this will be a little bit longer, maybe 25 or 30. Not too bad. Pretty but, reasonable still. Yeah. And uh, about half of that will not be on a freeway, so... Yeah, uh, well, it gives you more time to listen to podcasts. Yes. I uh, guess we would like to thank our sponsor here. Uh, we have him on the line. So thank you, Ryan, for hosting this podcast. Yeah, no problem. This is great. You know, Matt and I were talking about this just just a few days ago. 
and and you know when we started this last year, we never thought, honestly, that we could do it for a year, which is pretty amazing alone. But then, in that same year, totally get a new show that had nothing to do with Matt or I in it. So you're, you're a complete stranger to us, essentially. Yeah. And, and you're on the network now, and it's great. So yes. we're glad to have you. Yes, uh, thank you. Um, yeah, the uh, story of how I got involved with the Nexus was kind of weird, in that uh, essentially uh, Ryan left the clubhouse door open and I was the bum who wandered in. If that's how you want to see it, you can certainly do that. Uh, but uh, really, I came across uh, Ryan's blog and some uh, uh, search I was doing. I forget what I was exactly I was searching for. I'd be curious to find out what you were searching for, because uh, I do have some strange things on my blog. Uh, but it was, uh, I think it was like the middle of last year, and I'm not sure if you still have those posts up. Oh, I, I have everything up still. Yeah, because uh, you had mentioned that you had uh, you had wanted to delete those. I, I, I have said that. I, I thought about pruning the bad ones or deleting them all, but instead I just considered, nah, it's too much work. So what I did is I just left them all there. Unlike, uh, well, sort of like what you did with the Nexus. Ha ha ha. <laughs> yes. Uh, at the Nexus. Right. Um, so, yeah, and then I came back uh, occasionally, and then, oh, you have a podcast. So, generally, if I like someone, I will listen to their podcast. That's good. I'm glad you somehow liked me enough to listen to my show. Yes, And, and here I, you are. Yes, I did listen to that, uh, I think it was that one-year retrospective. It was supposed to be that quarterly review. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it seems like this show is doing pretty good. I, I think it's it's doing well for the people that we know are listening to it. it. It's really odd because, you know, we're not in iTunes. We're not in a... So iTunes is essentially the podcast capital of the universe. And, you know, the universe isn't really recording that much, so ha, it's really ha, hard. Ha, ha. <laughs> uh, so it's really hard to get exposure. And the exposure we have, you know, it, it's done very well. Yep. You know, for instance, uh, I think my roomie's listening to it. That's uh, great. Some other guy I meant is listening to it. Uh, my pastor is listening to it. Uh, I think my mom is listening. Hi, mom. <laughs> Hello uh, to you too. Uh, and my parents uh, used to listen, uh, although I think they forget because we have so many shows now. I think they forget that a new one is up, and they don't use feed readers or anything. So, and uh, I listen to my own podcast. Well, that's good. I used to I, do that too. I downloaded it. I think I downloaded it three times. Well, thanks for skewing your own results. <laughs> 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 so, uh, uh, let's see. Well, Ryan, would you uh, like me to go over the questions that you had? Uh, if you want to, yeah, definitely. All right. Uh, Ryan was uh, nice enough to use the uh, the feedback feature on the Nexus uh, to send me a question here. Uh, here we go. Uh, let's see. You had uh, mentioned about the browsers. Uh, and how you were on AOL for quite some time. Mm-hmm. And then you had uh, mentioned about the uh, the slowness of websites, and uh, specifically about uh, how pretty much everyone that you know of who would uh, you know participate and listen to it, 
you know, had, you know, pretty quick connections. Yeah, I think so. I think it's pretty fair to say that most people who are listening to podcasts probably don't have DSL or really super slow, uh, you know, DSL. Uh, which is strange because DSL is kind of spotty where you are. It's or, spotty everywhere, apparently. Or uh, rather, YouTube is spotty. Uh, it's Morris. Uh, it's not where I am. You uh, mentioned uh, having uh, Macs in your classroom? Yes. Yeah, we, we had an old Apple computer. I don't know if it was a Apple II or, or what it was, but uh, eventually we got the Emacs or the, you know, the ones that were candy-colored. Uh, we got those. By yeah, second the Emacs, the first generation Emacs. Yeah. Right, and so then before that we had the Emacs, I guess, and then by fifth grade we had the white Emacs, the ones where they weren't transparent in the back, and then they had a, there was still the CRT type, but then they were angled down instead of being round rounded corners. Hmm. So, and you had asked me, uh, what is the most foul API that I've ever come across? Yes. Uh, that has probably got to be anything involving SOAP uh, web services. Uh, SOAP being a simple object access protocol. That sounds complicated already. Yeah, it is uh, basically a bunch of XML and uh that uh, contains a serialized object that is also represented in XML. And pretty much everything that I've ever used it with, uh, the uh, conventions that these libraries use goes against, you know, pretty much all that makes uh, makes it usable. Right. So. Yeah, I, I, I've never personally used SOAP, but I, I know anything with XML is already bad, but then to put it in into a web service is just a travesty. Well, XML in and of itself isn't bad. Oh, it's tar- terrible. It's just, you know, the excessive use of it. It's too verbose. It, do- it doesn't make sense. You, yeah. Most things don't need to be human-readable. And HTML is human-readable, but no humans need to read it. So well, why bother? So, uh, well, speaking of HTML, uh, you can find me at my blog, uh, theandrewbailey.com. You can also find me on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash in slash the Andrew Bailey. <laughs> and of course, you can find me, Ryan Amar, just about anywhere, especially on the Twitter, Ryan Amar. Uh, I still have a blog occasionally where I post things. Uh, you can find that at blog.ryanrampersad.com. Uh, which is easily reachable from ryanrampersad.com. Yeah, same thing. So... All right, so uh, what do you plan on doing for Thanksgiving? Uh, you know, for Thanksgiving, I'm, I'm actually going to stay here and eat food and uh, finish, good. finish working on the additions to the website that will be coming very soon. Oh, so, yeah, my uh, my parents just got back from Mexico. Oh, that's uh, great. Like vacation? Yeah. yeah uh, oh, that's, that sounds They've good. been there for, I think it was over three weeks. Oh, that's a great vacation. So, you know, they're they're all tropicaled out. Of course. And, you know, when they left, I was a good parent and, you know, told them to stay away from the drug gangs. Good. And about how much I'd be worried about them. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> well, you have to, you can never be too careful in, uh, in places like that. So, um, yeah, and then I said I was doing a podcast and that I would be, probably be coming over sometime Thursday. And Mom said, well, you want to have it on Friday? And I said, sure. So I'm going to be uh, postponing uh, to Black Friday. Okay, that sounds good. Uh, 
And, uh, you know, I don't really know anyone that goes crazy on Black Friday. Oh, well, now you do. So uh, for the past couple of years, my dad and I, we actually stay up all night and go to all the stores that open really, really early. So Target Target opens uh, at... uh, 12 now i think and so we go there uh a menards a hardware store that's nearby they they open up at like two uh walmart is open continuously so we go there yeah it's a lot of fun actually gee ryan thanks for ruining the streak there yeah well no problem um, it had to happen sometime and well you know i don't know anyone else uh that uh you know spends thousands of dollars in the debt to buy everyone and their dog presents for christmas uh, i only buy the dog things actually really yeah i like i like spoiling that dog it likes toys so i, I only buy the dog toys. so in other words they neglect you yeah oh that's great that's yeah, not a problem um yeah, I, you know, I, I've been known to ruin streaks. You know, episode 50, you know, it was good, and then it ended. Oh, you mean that gadget show you're totally not doing anymore? <laughs> yeah, yes. I remember that one. Yeah, that gadget show. Man, you know, this new phone I have. Yeah, that one. <laughs> All right, so I guess we'll uh, have a good one. Yep, you too, have a good one. Mm-hmm.